and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Thursday night and Friday night, um, the two different options for the guardrail small group. So again, if you haven't joined one, you can jump in there and we'll be talking through some material on Sunday. And you can kind of take that home and, and work with it and walk it out during the week. And then on Thursday and Friday, you'll get together and share some food and some laughs, I'm sure, and then kind of talk through the material together and the different experiences that are going on in everybody's lives. So I'm looking forward to kind of hearing some of the stories of what comes out of this kind of new format and this new little tie-in that we're doing with small groups. And, uh, and so, again, man, take advantage of that if you can. And this study is really... It's a really great study, and there's a, there's a lot of different reasons why I like this study so much, and, and I'm so glad that we kind of found this material and are going through it together. Um, but one of the things that we, we have to do today is kind of introduce everything. So introdu- introductory message of a new series is always a little bit kind of informational, and I'll try and not go too long. I, I was talking with somebody before service, and just to kind of settle everybody's nerves, the Super Bowl doesn't start till 3, so... Even if I go a little bit long, which today I only have about, you know, like two hours worth of notes. So uh, even if I go a little bit long, I shouldn't delay your viewing experience. All right. So everybody kind of calm down, settle down, put your phones down. You're not going to see any scores for a little bit. All right. Um, But looking at guardrails and what guardrails are, let's let's kind of start there. Like what are guardrails? And maybe kind of we can find out why we're talking about these in this series. Guardrails are a system. And I, I, I love that little kind of, this is like the dictionary definition maybe, a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. And we've all, I'm sure, seen guardrails all around. There are guardrails on bridges to kind of keep us from driving off the edge and into the river or into the abyss, whatever it is. There are guardrails in the medians, right, in between us and the oncoming traffic. And that's to keep, you know, us safe from the people that are driving the other way, or maybe that's to keep the people driving the other way safe from us, uh, knowing the way that some of us drive. Uh, There are guardrails around curves, right, because a lot of times and often there are unexpected changes in the road. And so there are guardrails that exist to keep people safe. And and, and really, guardrails serve two different purposes. And we don't really think about it this way, but guardrails actually direct and protect. They tell you where to go, and they protect you from going the wrong way. And then here's one more kind of really important thing to know about guardrails kind of going into the series is that guardrails are never actually placed in the danger area, are they? Guardrails are actually placed in the safe area, a few feet into the safe area. If you're on a bridge, there's actually like a few feet of of concrete or asphalt out there that you could technically drive on, but someone put a guardrail up to keep you all the way safely into the safe area. What's interesting in our society and our culture as we kind of talk about these things as it relates to traffic systems and then this kind of metaphor that we're going to dive into in the rest of this series is that nobody in our culture Nobody in our society argues with the logic that it is better or best to have the guardrails in the safe area. Like, nobody disputes that. Nobody has a problem with that. Everybody's fine with it, and everybody actually agrees that it's better. But that doesn't always happen when you kind of extend the metaphor into the other arenas of life. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Another thing to know about guardrails is guardrails are actually designed to minimize damage. And you're, if you hit a guardrail, you're going to have some damage happen to your car, but the damage that you experience in your car hitting the guardrail is going to be significantly less than the damage that you would experience if that guardrail was not there and you had gone off the edge or off the road. So 
So why are we talking about guardrails in this, this, this series? And obviously guardrails are kind of a metaphor, right? And it turns out that the highway and driving our physical cars is not the only place that we need guardrails. In fact, if we were to pull this room, most of us in this room would agree that our greatest regrets in life, and we all have some regrets in life, right? Our greatest regrets in life could have been avoided, would have been avoided if we had had some guardrails in place, maybe some financial guardrails, maybe some moral guardrails or relationship guardrails, or maybe even professional guardrails, that some of the biggest regrets in our life could have been avoided if we had had some guardrails. Now, here's the great news kind of flip side to that coin. Your future regrets can be avoided if you can go through the hard work now and the process now of designing a system for avoiding dangerous places in life. So guardrails, guardrails, and we're using the metaphor, of course, for our character and and morality and all of those kinds of things. Now, I do want to say up front, listen, guardrails are not popular. Nobody likes to be told no, especially you. And guardrails are not popular. And this is actually kind of some, you know, it has to do kind of with some of the clash between culture and Christianity that's kind of going on nowadays. Here's the thing. Culture doesn't encourage guardrails. The world that we live in, the society that we live in, culture doesn't encourage any kind of rules or kind of firm guidelines in life. In fact, culture is fine with having painted lines, just some suggestions, some, some ideas that are there, right? Some loose idioms and sayings that we kind of see floating around social media, some suggestions, some warnings maybe. But when you and I begin to establish some guardrails in life, this is going to happen. People around you, maybe even people that are close to you, maybe even people that, are, that, are, that love you, when they see you establishing personal guardrails, they a lot of times will not encourage you because there's, and, and, and I get why this happens. Listen, there's been a lot of, of judgment in the past and condemnation in the past, uh, you know, with people having different kinds of personal guardrails and, and kind of trying to foist their guardrails onto someone else's life and their boundaries onto other people's life. I get all of that. I understand all of that. But listen, just because someone else has not done a great job of not being self-righteous and trying to push their ideas and their limits onto you doesn't mean that guardrails aren't a great idea. But still, what happens a lot of times in culture and society is that there's one of these kind of, you know, judgmental interactions or judgmental conversations that happens, and then society thinks, well, we just we want to get rid of everybody's guardrails. We want to get rid of everybody's limits, and and don't worry about that stuff. And so culture just kind of has suggestions, some painted lines, if you will. For example, culture tells us to drink responsibly, and that's really appropriate on Super Bowl Sunday, isn't it? Drink responsibly. It sounds great. But when do you know that you have crossed over from responsible to irresponsible, right? That's the trick. That's the rub. That's the thing right there because you can ask a drunk person, are you still responsibly drinking? And what are they going to say? No, they're going to say yes because they're slurring their words. Like, yeah. And then they're going to fall out of their chair, right? Like some, and you realize that it sounds like great, you know, like great advice, drink responsibly, until... You see the statistics and you see everything going on in our culture and you realize that that saying as as kind of this guardrail just doesn't work. It doesn't help enough people. Or for example, this college or culture rather tells teens and college students all the time, when it comes to sex, 
Wait until you're ready. Now, that was probably invented by a lady to give an advice to other, you know, younger ladies. But if you try and tell a teenage boy, wait until you're ready, he's going to say, I was born ready, right? Like, you know, what do you mean, wait till I was ready? And it's just not enough. It's not enough to keep somebody from going over the edge. It's not enough to keep somebody from having a regret in their life. Culture might say, consolidate your debt. And in some extreme circumstances, may not be the worst advice you could give someone, but it's not really a guardrail to keep someone safe. It's not really a guardrail that would direct and not just protect someone into kind of a future financial situation that they would want. So culture has resistance to rules, and we get that, and we don't want to be told no. And culture likes, you know, dislikes guardrails. And if you set up guardrails for your life, other people might even make fun of you. They're going to look at you funny. They're not going to understand what's going on. But here's the interesting thing. Even though culture doesn't like us to set up guardrails and to, to kind of display that we have guardrails, this also happens, that culture shames us when we end up in a ditch. Culture shames the people that end up in a ditch relationally. They end up in a ditch financially. Culture shames the people that end up in a ditch professionally or when it comes to addictions. It's, just, it's, it's incredible to me that there is shame for those that have guardrails, but then there is shame that is heaped on people who have gone off the road and made a wreck or made some kind of ruin in their life. For example, we see this going on if you've been you know, following politics over the past few years and I mean, who hasn't? It's just been so noisy and so in our face. Anybody ever heard of the Billy Graham rule when it comes to men in leadership and, and dealing and working with women? You maybe have never heard of the Billy Graham rule. How many of you have heard of the Mike Pence rule? Anybody heard of Mike Pence's kind of, this is like a younger crowd. They're like, I don't even know who Mike Pence was. Wasn't he the third president of the United States after George Washington and Johnny Appleseed? No, it's Mike Pence, our vice president had this rule that he came up with where he wouldn't travel alone with a woman. He wouldn't meet a woman who wasn't his wife. He wouldn't meet in a closed room with no doors, no windows, with a woman who wasn't his wife. He wouldn't share a meal alone with a woman who wasn't his wife. And Billy Graham had this rule back years ago, and it kind of became famous maybe kind of in the southern states. And, and then Mike Pence had adopted this as one of his kind of you know, personal guardrails for his life. And when this came out a few years ago, a couple years ago now, the media kind of went crazy attacking Mike Pence and, and saying just that he was trying to, you know, like oppress women and didn't want to give women the, the, the ability to, you know, to rise in power, you know, and this kind of thing. And culture tried to shame Mike Pence around his guardrail that he had set up. But almost exactly at the same time, the Me Too movement was happening or was about to happen or it just happened. So culture found itself like with this this kind of double standard. Like, we don't like what Mike Pence is doing, and that's just like, you know, oppressive to women and that kind of thing, but at the same time, me too. And we need to shame these men that, you know, and they vilified and mocked men for their affairs and their behavior and the closed-door meals, closed-door meals with women and conversations that kind of happen in secret meetings between men in power and women. And, and it's just interesting, this, this thing that culture has, this, this idea that culture has where they don't like to see guardrails, they don't want to know about your guardrails, but if you don't have guardrails and you end up in a messy situation, we're going to shame you and mock you. 
and kind of pick at you a little bit. And, and the author of this series, you know, Guardrails, brings up this interesting article in, in the Harvard Business Review, which if you know about the Harvard Business Review, it's some of the best and brightest minds in our world. And they actually were discussing the issue of, of the Mike Pence rule. And we're going to kind of stay on this just, just for a few minutes, if you'll allow me some, some latitude. And, and talking about the Mike Pence rule and, and, and how it applies to kind of like all of America and all of men in leadership and, and women in leadership and these kinds of things and what it means to women and, and for women in, in business. And basically, this article in the Harvard Business Review from, from some of the most intelligent people in the country is kind of against the Mike Pence rule. And, and they say it shuts women out and, and it sees them only for their sexual side or their attractiveness and it limits their opportunities. And listen, you have to know this. You probably already know this about life. Like every issue in life, it's like a pendulum. Like you have this extreme and you have this extreme and probably somewhere in the middle is where you want to land on this thing, right? Because it turns out that some of the points in the article are valid. Like there have been some people who have kind of misapplied and, and abused this Mike Pence thing to legitimately try and, you know, limit opportunities for women. And that's not, obviously, that's not okay either. But to go to the other extreme and say, well, you shouldn't have any kind of rule for that, well, that's what the Harvard Business Review was trying to do. And so this is an example of our culture and the best and the brightest in our culture kind of being against people having guardrails in their life. And, and they discuss all the points of, of men in leadership and men who are increasingly surrounded by attractive, yes, but intelligent and capable women in the workplace who indeed should be seen as having equal worth and equal organizational value. And then Harvard Business Review kind of slams this Mike Pence rule and gives their own version of what we should do to be safe as men in leadership. The painted lines that they want to offer as a solution, certainly not guardrails, but here's what the Harvard Business Review, some of the smartest people in the country, here's what they had to say to men in leadership. Oh, we, we talked about the Mike Pence rule, sorry. So, they say, what's an evolved male leader to do? In the simplest terms, become what we call a thoughtful caveman. Become a thoughtful caveman. And you can see the art, you know, by this time they're kind of close to the end of the article, and the authors are kind of realizing, you know, okay. Can't really deny that men have wiring that's different than women, you know, and, but be a thoughtful caveman. Be an evolved caveman, right? Don't be like the cavemen in the Geico commercials. And you're going to travel with attractive women and eat with attractive women and meet with attractive women and collaborate and share workspace and work hours with women. All of the dynamics that are in play between men and women. And what do we suggest you do? We want you to become a thoughtful caveman. Now, to all the men in the room, isn't that just so helpful? No, it's not very helpful. It might be helpful to some, but if that's not helpful enough, they do have a little bit more to say. They say this, healthy, mature, self-aware men understand and accept their distinctly male neural architecture. Most of the guys in the room aren't sure we completely understand that sentence, much less our distinctly male neural architecture, right? And if this is supposed to help, 
Like this is supposed to be the best and the brightest minds in the country trying to help men in leadership figure out how to navigate this kind of new space. And honestly, like as a, as a social experiment, like men and women integrated today, it's something that's fairly young actually in history. It's not a lot of, there's not a lot to it. We're kind of into this experiment, maybe a generation or so deep. And, but by, you know, these are the guidelines. These are the suggestions by some of the brightest minds on the planet. And it's like, this is it? Like all the crazy differences and dynamics between men and women. And, and men, you know, you shouldn't have guardrails in your life. No, that's way too antiquated. That's way too outdated. Instead, what you should have is an understanding of how you are wired. Well, man, I understand that each and every day. And here's the other thing. Like, and all the ladies are going to get this right off the bat, right? I probably don't even need to do this. But ladies, I, I want to ask you, I want to ask you, how many of these are there? Some of you ladies would say you've never even met one. Some of you would say, if anybody ever sees one, can you please capture him so we can study him because he's like a unicorn. It, it. And here's the thing. If you ever find one of these guys, they don't need guardrails. But for the other 99.99% of us, we need guardrails. And so, like, this is just an example. You know, the, we're going to talk about this more in week three, actually, on this specific thing. And I'm not saying there's no value in this. I'm not saying that some haven't mischaracterized this or misapplied this and actually, in fact, limited women's opportunities, that kind of stuff. If you're on the other side of this political spectrum and you think that I'm just kind of blindly advocating something or whatever and you're starting to kind of build up some resistance to what I'm saying, just give me till week three, all right? After week three, listen to what I have to say and you can hate me. If you want, write me nasty emails. That's all right. Just give me till week three. But for today, I'm, it's, it's okay. Okay. All right. So that's the, the, the whole point of this sidetrack is to say, you know, if you choose to have personal guardrails, chances are the culture around you will not celebrate you for your great and manifold wisdom. People will call you weird. People will say bad things about you and look at you funny. But you will, you will have fewer regrets if you establish some personal guardrails. So as you might expect, we're kind of kicking off this series, and I certainly didn't dream up these ideas. The author of this study didn't dream up these ideas of personal guardrails. These ideas have been around for, for thousands of years. And, and, of course, being a Christian church, we see in the Hebrew Bible, which we would call like the Old Testament, the old part of our Bible, they talk about standards, and, and they talk about boundaries. And in the new part of our Bible, what we call the New Testament, you know, the part that actually applies to us and, and, and you know, in this, this side of our covenant with God. They talk about standards and boundaries. And so because you're in church, I figured I'd better show you something in the Bible before you leave. And so we're going to go to one of the letters that was written to the early Christians uh, in, in a city called Ephesus. And we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5 in just a second. But Paul is the man who wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, to the early Jesus followers in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is this incredibly gritty, and it turns out really, really brilliant um, first century Jesus follower. And he actually steps on, if you've been coming here for a while, you know this, he steps onto the pages of history actually as a Jesus hater. And he, he kind of hates the Jesus movement, and he uses all of his influence and all of his power to actually have Christians arrested, and in some cases even put to death. And then one day, everybody starts noticing that Paul has made this radical change, and Paul is no longer against Christians. Paul has actually become a Christian. 
In fact, he's become one of the most radical Christians. And so they ask him about this transformation. And, and, and it turns out that Paul claims that I've actually met the risen Jesus. Like Jesus was crucified. Some people were saying he rose from the dead. I didn't believe it, was putting all of them to death and arresting them. But I met him. And it seems as we read Paul's story and read his words that because of how Paul was treated by a risen Jesus, like he was an enemy of the risen Jesus, he was an enemy of the dead Jesus, he was an enemy of all Christians and all the Jesus followers, but when he met the risen Jesus, even though he was an enemy, even though he had done these horrific things, he was forgiven and loved by a risen Jesus, and then by the other Christians that were still in existence during his day. And because of that, the love of Jesus literally transformed Paul and made, turned him into this man that for the rest of his life, he devoted himself to going and starting other Jesus communities all over his world. And so he's kind of bravely traveling all over the Roman Empire into new territories and starting new little Jesus communities all over. And, and then he would leave these new communities that he would start, and he would write them letters you know, back into these, these places, that he had, these churches that he had begun, and, and give them some instructions on, on kind of how to be Jesus communities and how to be Jesus followers, you know, maybe like after the new wears off a little bit. So in the letter to the Ephesians, this document you find in the new part of your Bible that we call the book of Ephesians, by the end of chapter 4 and getting into chapter 5, he's finished telling these early Jesus followers, okay, here are some things to stay away from. Here are some things to do, some things not to do, some things that are harmful. Nothing really surprising. It's a pretty typical list. And, and some behaviors to incorporate into your life, some behaviors to stop in your life. And, and it seems like he kind of pauses in the middle of chapter 5. And it's like he starts trying to, to give them some handles. Instead of just giving them lists, he starts to kind of give them some handles, some ways to live so that you, as you walk along the pathway of life, you don't end up in a ditch to the right or end up in a ditch to the left. You know? and, and so you know, when it comes to your relationships or your finances or, or maybe you know, morally or in your friendships, these are some ways that you should live. Let me stop and talk to you about it. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15, Paul writes to these early Jesus followers, be very careful then how you live. Be careful. Be full of care. Not just a little bit, but be full of care. How you live. And it's interesting, we're reading from the New International Version, but this, this word live here in the Greek, it could be translated and often is translated as walk. And in fact, other translations of the, of the Bible tell us, be very careful then how you walk. And if you've ever had a large dog and a small yard, you know exactly what Paul is talking about there. Be careful then how you walk. And he goes on and he says, not as unwise, but as wise. And this is, this is so important in, in the Jewish scriptures. We've got to do a study on wisdom someday. But Paul was one of the smartest Jews of, of his day. But wisdom, in the ancient Jewish scriptures, wisdom was sort of this decision-making template. It was this filter that you would use to make decisions in your life. And sometimes we kind of boil wisdom down to and knowledge. We kind of boil it down and oversimplify it into like knowing what's right and knowing what's wrong. But how many of us know that the, the things that we wrestle with the most in life are the things that we're kind of encountering in times when we don't know exactly what's right? We're not sure exactly what is wrong. And that's where wisdom comes into play. Wisdom can actually fill in that gap. And wisdom can actually ask the question, I may not know what's right or what's wrong in this moment, but what is the most wise thing to do in this moment? And I love how, you know, the author of this study kind of breaks this into application. The question to talk or to ask ourselves is, in light of my past experiences, 
in light of my current circumstances, and in light of my future hopes, what is the wise thing to do in this moment? I don't know what's right. I'm not really sure what's wrong. But in light of my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes, what is the wise thing to do in this moment? And so Paul is saying, be careful how you live. Be careful how you walk and navigate life. Don't be unwise, but be wise. Gain some clarity before you take a step. And then he says this, and I love this, making the most of every opportunity. In other translations say this, redeeming the time. And I love this because what Paul is doing, he's saying, time is your most valuable asset. Anybody here over 27 know that that is so very true? Time is your most valuable asset. Time is actually your most precious resource. You know how much money you have in the bank. You don't know how much time you have left on this planet. We saw this last Sunday, the middle of my message. Everybody starts looking at their phone. Turns out that Kobe Bryant was in a tragic helicopter crash. You don't know when it's your time to go. You don't know how much time you have left. And so Paul is saying, treat your future opportunities like you wish you would have treated your past opportunities. Be careful then how you live. Be careful where you step and how you navigate and make the most of every opportunity because we all wish we would have gotten a little more perspective. We all wish we would have had a little more information. We all wish we knew what things were really going to count in year 5 and 10 and year 15, don't we? We wish we knew. And so Paul's saying, you already have plenty of experiences in what happens when you're not careful. So be careful, be wise, and make the most of every opportunity. And then we think, well, okay, Paul, that kind of makes sense, you know, but why do you think this is so important? Why do you, you're so soaked in ancient wisdom and you, you know you've got like a direct line to Jesus. Why would you say that we should live life this way? And Paul says this, this strange kind of statement here, he says, because the days are evil. And he's writing 2,000 years ago to maybe like 50, maybe 100 people in a city called Ephesus, and they belong to this small community of Jesus followers that is just so like, it's so different. It stands in such strong contrast to the world that was around them, the culture that was around them, the movements that were around them, the political aspirations and machinations and you know, people rising against other kind of people and all of these things. And Paul is saying, look, you've got to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Times are dangerous. It's almost like there's this force that is around you that is trying to drag you down. It's almost like there's this force that is inside of you at times that is trying to pull you back and drag you down, and, and pulling this, you know, kind of into this guardrails metaphor of our series, what Paul is telling the people to do is to practice defensive driving. Anybody know what defensive driving is? Raise your hand. All right, four of us. <laughs> this is not good for getting out of the parking lot. Like, <laughs> we're in trouble. Defensive driving is basically to tell us to pay attention to the other guy. Make sure as you drive that you have a lane that you can escape in if something suddenly pops up in your lane. Don't follow too close. Make sure there's enough gap in front of you. Pay attention to your blind spots. And now, we know everybody here is a great driver. Can I hear an amen from any great driver? And we all know that everybody else not here today 
They're what? They're horrible drivers. Can I hear another amen? <laughs> oh my goodness, self-deception is alive. We're all great drivers, and everybody else is a horrible, horrible driver. So how much more what Paul is saying kind of makes sense now? Be careful how you live. Watch out for the days around you, for the forces at work around you, for the voices that are all around you. C.S. Lewis actually has a, a brilliant metaphor for this. If you've never read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, you should. it's just an excellent book, and he talks about that. So there's my little plug for Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. But, but Paul goes on, and he's, he's telling these early Christians, he says, look, therefore, do not be foolish. And again, this ancient Jewish wisdom thing, like this is so cool, and what Paul talks, or what, what the Old Testament has to say about wisdom is so powerful. In the ancient wisdom, the thing about fools is that they had no clue about connections and consequences. They had no understanding. They did things with no awareness of the impact of what they did on other people. They would act and do things. Fools would do things with no awareness of how what they did today was going to impact their tomorrow. And so Paul is saying, don't be one of those people. Understand the impact of your behavior and your actions on the people that are around you. Understand the impact of your behavior on your tomorrow. So don't be foolish. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Understand. And that's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it, right? Like we wish we could actually tell people to understand things and then they would understand things. Right? Like you have an argument, you have a disagreement with somebody, and you wish you could just say, understand. And they would understand. Like, wouldn't that be nice? Right? There would be no more marriage counselors if that was the case. Just, just understand. And Paul said, no, you have to understand. You have to consider this. You have to think about this. You have to pull this into the front part of your brain and think about it and twist it around and chew on it a little bit. How you exercise that free will that God has given you brings about different results and different consequences. And so I want you to understand what your behaviors do and what your actions do. And as you consider your behaviors and your actions in the moment and how they're going to affect your future, then I want you to bring the Lord's will into your thinking. Bring that into your consideration. And in terms of our guardrails idea, what Paul is saying, you know, you know where the edge is. You've been down this road before. You know that there's a curve coming up that's a little bit hard to handle. And maybe you've had some close calls there before. Maybe you've almost slipped into danger there before. Maybe you've actually wrecked there before. And now you're in recovery. Now you're on the other side of that, but you're coming up to that curve again. Don't be a fool. Understand the impact of your present behaviors. And then he starts giving some examples. And we're going to kind of, you know, sit on this first one for a little bit today and get into some of the rest of these in the rest of this series. But the, he starts telling them, these are some common pitfalls. These are some of the bends in the road where a lot of people have made wrecks of their life. And so I'm going to show you a guardrail. And then I'm going to show you the danger that this guardrail is intended to keep you from. And so he says in verse 18, do not get drunk on wine. To which some of us are thinking, he didn't say anything about Jack Daniels. And if you're thinking of this like that, you may be misunderstanding the spirit of what Paul is trying to say. Can I hear an amen from somebody 
who's not going to go drink a bunch of Jack and Coke right after service. All right, so, <laughs> yeah, if you're thinking about things that way, you're trying to twist your thinking into, like, old covenant thinking. That's not the way it's so, you know, these verses in the New Testament, they're not like an amendment. It's not like an addendum to the Ten Commandments. So if you're thinking about that, you're doing it wrong. In, in ancient times, actually, when Paul was writing this, these people, wine was actually safer to drink than water for them. Think about what they would store their water in. Think of the sanitary or lack of sanitary conditions in, right? And so wine could make you drunk in these days. Water could make you dead. And so he's like, look, I know you're going to drink wine, but do not get drunk. And, and so, you know, they would treat their water with wine sometimes, or sometimes they just drink wine just to be safe. And, and so Paul's saying, look, you're going to be drinking wine, but don't get drunk on wine, which leads to. Now, notice that language there, which leads to. In other words, one thing leads to another. If you get too close to this edge, it will lead you somewhere that you didn't want to go. You're driving on a road through life. You have a, des a desired destination in mind. You have somewhere that you are trying to arrive and somewhere you're trying to arrive safely. And if you're not careful on this curve, if you don't set up a guardrail, if your tires go over the edge, it will lead you to a destination you never planned on reaching and it will leave you in a condition of hurt and pain that you never imagined that you would experience. Think about this. Now, look, this is, this is kind of a powerful exercise. Like, everybody tune in. Everybody's thinking about the Super Bowl. Come back. Come back. Stop counting lights just for a second. There's 32 boards on the back wall. Stop counting those. Everybody just come. Yes, you count the small ones with the large ones. That's how I came up with 32. All right? So just look at this. Do not get drunk on Everybody's laughing because you do that, huh? Do not get drunk on wine, now look, which leads to, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to fill in that blank on your own. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to what? Fill in that blank maybe out of your own experience. Think, well, hold on, don't jump ahead. You're giving away the answer. Great, now it's ruined. Altar call, let's go home. No, I'm just kidding. Somebody's ready for the Super Bowl, I can tell. Think about this. Out of your own experience, out of your own experience, do not get drunk on wine, which leads you. Out of your own past, fill in that blank. Maybe, maybe out of the family that you grew up in. Maybe out of the second family that you grew up in. Maybe out of a friend's experience. Some people in this room, maybe in your life, your, your whole life would be different if someone else had had this as a guardrail in their life. Maybe your life would be different if you had had this as a guardrail in your life. Think about it. Your whole life would be a completely different story if your dad had had this as a guardrail. If your mom had had this as a guardrail. Think about this. Their life would be different for sure, but not just their life, your life. Your brother's or your sister's life, your stepbrother, your stepsister's life would be different if someone else would have this as a guardrail. Now look, I'm not trying to make this message all about alcohol and, and substance abuse, but for Paul, living in that first century content, context, getting drunk was the guardrail that Paul wanted to establish. 
Getting drunk was that guardrail, that limit. For some of you here, getting drunk in your past was the goal. It wasn't a guardrail. Like that was the goal, right? But it was a guardrail. Why did Paul make that a guardrail? Because of what it could lead to. Because it was always just about a good time until someone crossed a median and went into oncoming traffic. Because it was always just about a good time until someone went from throwing back shots to throwing fists, huh? Because it was always just about a good time until that college student realized that everybody else around him could control the addiction, but he couldn't. He was stuck. He was trapped. And suddenly what was only a pastime became a pathway and it led someone to a place they never wanted to go. And if only, if only someone had been wise and not foolish, if only someone had realized that the actions now have consequences later. And in light of my past, in light of my dad's past, in light of my mom's past, in light of someone that I know and someone that I love and their struggles, if I had only ended up or established this as a guardrail in my life, my life would be completely, completely different. But if you don't drink, for those that don't drink, culture mocks. Culture laughs. Culture tells them they need to loosen up, lighten up, stop being so uptight, and just have a good time, and it calls them weak. But then when someone finally gets to a place where they have to acknowledge that they have a drinking problem, culture pushes people to the edge after they've already gone off the edge. And it shames them, and it mocks them, and it stigmatizes them. And we're left with this idea of what do we do? How do we navigate life? And Paul would say, and Jesus, I think, would say to each and every one of us, it's time for you to establish some guardrails in your life, some things in your life set up in the safe zone, not in the danger area, but where it's still safe. Set up something that will direct you and protect you so that you can get where you dreamed of going and not make a wreck of your life. Mm. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to, and Paul fills in his blank like this, with debauchery. That's right. We never use this word anymore in 2020. It's just, it has a sexual connotation, but really it's, it's any kind of indulgence that re- results from a lack of self-control. And I mean, once you get drunk, once you get, I mean, what you, whose control are you under? It's not yours, right? That's why people say things like that was the booze talking. That was the drugs talking, right? DUI stands for driving under the influence. You're under something else's control. And this is the idea behind guardrails. Guardrails safeguard us from handing over control of our lives to someone or something else. Guardrails safeguard us from handing over control of our lives to someone or something else. And what we need to understand about guardrails is that guardrails have the potential to protect a home. Guardrails have the potential to protect a career. Guardrails have the potential to protect a marriage or finances or future options and even your kids. Paul said in another letter, I'm not going to go to it now, but he said, do not be mastered by anyone or anything else. Do not put yourself under the control of someone or something else. Guardrails are the way to keep yourself from being mastered by something or someone that could take you somewhere 
you never wanted to go and leave you in a condition you never dreamed you would end up in. That's the reason for guardrails. Now, if you're not sure about following Jesus, maybe you're early on to following Jesus, you're newer, and you know everything that I've said so far is, is you know, kind of sure, right? We all get it. It kind of makes sense, and it's not even really that very, you know, very much religious, and, and, and we look at this stuff, and it's just kind of common sense. It seems so, right? But the next verse is where Paul kind of changes lanes a little bit. The next verse is where Paul kind of, you know, shows us that he's actually writing to Christians and Jesus followers, and he begins to leverage his faith in who he believed Jesus to be, that, that God had wanted to clearly make himself known to a broken and hurting world. God wanted to show us in all of our brokenness, when we're looking around trying to find what is my reference point, what is my true north, what should I be aiming my life and my character to end up as, God sent his son as a rescue to us broken people in our world, living out our broken ways of being human. And Jesus actually claimed to be that perfect picture of exactly who God is and what God is like so that we would know that God, in fact, likes us. In fact, the most famous verse in all the Bible, God so loved the world, so loved you and me. And Paul believes that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And Paul believes that God was doing a new arrangement when it came to his relationship with people, and that now God's laws wouldn't just be a list on some kind of stone tablet, but there was this new and kind of mysterious way, and frankly, it was just something that nobody really had any, any kind of context for, but that God actually wants to live inside of us, that God actually wants to come and write his laws or write his guardrails, not just on stone tablets, but actually on our hearts and our minds, and kind of the way that he would do, the, do this, the, the vehicle for this new relationship between us and between God is called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and being full of the Holy Spirit is what we call having God present around us and in us as we navigate life as Jesus followers. And so Paul is telling these early Christians, look, don't be filled with wine. We all know, we've all seen, we've all experienced the effects of where that can lead. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Instead of giving over control of your life to something or someone that's going to take you somewhere you don't want to go, instead, give control of your life over the one who designed you. Give control of your life over, the, to, the, over to the one who made you, the maker of you, the heavenly father of you, the one who loves you, the one who planned for you, the one who designed you and orchestrated you and knew your name before your parents did, the one who says that he sees you and that he knows you and that he cares for you, and then he stepped into our world and laid down his life to prove without doubt that he is for us. And if somebody dies, if somebody lays down their life for you, you can trust that that one is for you. So Paul says, look, be careful. Don't be unwise. Be wise. And don't give control of yourself over to something or someone that will take you where you never wanted to go. But be filled instead with the Spirit. Be filled with Him. Let your days be full of Him. Let your thoughts be full of Him. Let your steps be ordered by Him. And this new way of life that Paul experienced, you know, this transformation that had happened to him, Paul expected and wanted us to know that this should be our experience as well. 
Not that we would do exactly what he did, traveling all over the round, starting little Jesus communities, but maybe that we would begin to move in ways that we have not moved before as we begin to learn to navigate life under the control and the influence of the Spirit of God. Maybe the presence of God, that we would invite more of it into our lives. That we would look to his example and look to his words and as we begin to feel him directing us into new ways of living, that maybe we would begin to speak like Jesus spoke and, and maybe we would live under the same influence of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was under. When Jesus said, look, these aren't really my words that I'm speaking, but the words that I speak, this, this is the Father living inside of me. I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. I don't say anything except what the Father tells me to say. And Paul said, that's what it looks like to not be filled with wine, but instead to be filled with His Spirit. And I wonder this morning, as Dustin comes on up, I wonder this morning, what could our lives look like? What would our lives look like if we decided that instead we were going to be filled with the Spirit every single day and in every single area of our lives? I wonder what would change in our worlds. I wonder what would change if we, if at every moment, at every bend in the road where we weren't really sure where to go and if we would tune in and we would pause and, and kind of push past our normal knee-jerk response and, and close our eyes in those moments when we're just not sure and we're seeking wisdom and we're seeking guidance, if we would pause and invite the Holy Spirit in those moments to, to fill us, to speak to us, to talk to us, and to guide us and to establish some guardrails in our life to direct us, and to protect us as we go. This, this is the life that's on offer when you follow Jesus. This is what it's all about, to follow Jesus. It's not about coming to church on Sundays and going home and forgetting about Him in the rest of your week. It's about living a life that's full of His presence. It's about living a life that's full of His words and, and beginning to copy and imitate His behaviors and the way that He talked to people and treated people the way he loved and gave to people. This is what it's about to be a Jesus follower. This is what it's about. Now, the next few weeks we're going to be coming back to this, these verses and these ideas a lot because nobody plans to wreck their life, right? Just like nobody plans to wreck their car. Nobody ever plans to, to wreck their career. Nobody ever plans to wreck their marriage or their health or their finances. But the problem is people don't plan not to wreck these things. And guardrails is how you plan not to make a wreck in your life. Guardrails are how you stay close to where it's safe. Guardrails are how you stay close to the one who is safe. Because when you put up a guardrail, you have to take a step back from the edge. You have to take a step back from the danger. And stepping away from what can harm you is a step toward the one who loves you. Stepping away from the things that will harm you is a step toward the one who only wants good for you, who died to prove that he is on your side, who died and gave of himself to show you that he loves you more than you realize that he loves you, more than you could ever think it possible to love you because you know everything about you, but then there are even some things about you you're not even aware of, right? We've all done things and said to ourselves, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that I went there. I can't believe I said that. We didn't even realize the potential inside of us for damage and for wreckage. But he knows. He saw. And he wasn't surprised. And in spite of everything that he knows, he loves you still. He loves me still. That's how much he loves us. 
For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.